Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 23. My name's Christopher Luft, and I'll be your host. On today's episode, we chat cutting-edge intel with the one and only Matt Bromley, followed by an interview with Joe Schreiber, co-founder and CEO of AppNovi. All right. Thanks for coming back and doing this again, Matt. I know you're super busy right now, but uh, me and our listeners really appreciate this. There's lots of good stuff that comes out of these conversations. I appreciate being here, Chris. It is uh, my pleasure to be here. And a huge thanks again to everyone who, uh, you know, joins the Liam and Charlie community, gets a chance to check out this podcast and, and gives us the time to talk about what some of these threats might mean. So huge thanks for having me back. Awesome. Yeah, I think we're just going to make this a regular part of the show uh, for anybody that's just coming to this for the first time. Uh, we're we're starting each episode now with like an Intel chat that's fed by Intel being shared by members of the Lima Charlie Slack community on the Intel channel. So really cool, up-to-date stuff that's curated. And uh, Matt's here to kind of help us deep dive and understand things at a more technical level. Yeah. And that being said, if there's something, you know, the nice thing about it is you're obviously all seeing that this is kind of community fed and community led. So if there's uh, a discussion that comes up and you happen to be part of it, feel free to keep that conversation going inside of our community Slack as well. We, we always love to hear what our community members have to say. And, uh, you know, if there's any hands-on experience or anything anyone's got with any of these types of threats or threat actors, we'd love to hear about it. Okay. Well, the first one I got, I'm really curious about What do you think of this new Microsoft Word vulnerability? Security researcher Joshua Drake released a proof of concept for a critical vulnerability tracked as CVE 2023-21716 with a CVSS score of 9.8 out of 10. Is this just an academic exercise or is this the type of exploit that can be used in a phishing campaign to gain a foothold in an organization? Yeah, so I think this is something that we're going to continue to see a lot of. So first off, like CVEs in Microsoft related products is nothing new to anyone. And and I'm not throwing any shade at Microsoft. It's just the world's most popular office suite is going to constantly have exposures and things like that. If I'm not mistaken, I think this vulnerability was announced in February of 2023. And when it was announced, uh, I believe there was no proof of concept in the wild. And Microsoft had deemed it critical, but had said it was less likely to be exploited. And I think just the way that they had kind of gone about, you know, doing their research and the way it had been discovered. But the vulnerability is exploited through the preview pane in Microsoft Outlook. And long story short, for anyone who may not be familiar with this, may be familiar with this concept is what I should say there. There is a interesting middle ground when you get to the integration of your operating system and documents and things that people observe and see. Um, If anyone remembers kind of back to the day, you would have a a, a list of folders and inside of those folders would be files and you'd have to double click on files to open them and things like that. Well, then what happened is we started getting things like the preview pane and, and images is a really easy way to think of preview pane. I could look at a folder of images or I could look at a slideshow of images, if you will. And I'm not actually opening the image in the traditional double click sense. But my operating system is reading that file and then rendering that file for me to see. Well, in that rendering slash preview process, there's got to be an assessment of what's inside of this file. And then, of course, that expands to documents as well. And it also expands to other applications that understand those documents. So if I receive an email these days and, and there's an, you know, an interesting kind of separate discussion, which we can have at another time, Chris, but there's an interesting discussion here about when I receive an email. And that email's got an attachment, and that attachment is automatically rendered for me. Do I ever actually open the file, or do I just rely on what's provided to me? But this vulnerability, I believe, deals with kind of what happens when certain files, and I think it's RTF files, rich text format files, 
I think it's RTF files that when they're rendered or viewed, um, there's a potential there for some remote code execution, hence the critical vulnerability assessment given by Microsoft. Uh, February, this was announced in March, early March 2023. March 5th, I think, was the day. Uh, of course, and I say this with, with, with a very bittersweet tone, uh, of course, someone figured out how to do it and decided to make the code public because, of course, why not? And uh, I think what you'll, you know, what you'll kind of see then is like we see any time a proof of concept code comes out there, any time a vulnerability is made publicly available and, or is, is disclosed and then the exploit is made publicly available. We always see kind of a, you know, a swath of threat actors usually figure out a way to weaponize it and deploy it in mass and things like that. The other consideration here is that Microsoft Office documents have started to really lock down and control how VBA macros are executed, especially for files that come from the internet. So I think you're going to continue to see adversaries look for new or additional means to get code executed on victim systems. And, and this is something that I would not be surprised if it's not already being weaponized heavily, being weaponized heavily soon. So I, I think it's something that we'll certainly see used in phishing campaigns in the future again if it's not already out there happening. And I'd be surprised if it's not already happening. Um, it, would it be a feasible tactic for somebody operating in like a high security environment to turn off those uh, file previews? Is that a way to prevent these kind of exploits from running? Yeah, that's that's one way to go about it. Um, the tough part about this is, and we've kind of talked about this on some previous sessions too, you, you really start to blur the lines between security controls and impacting people's jobs. You know, and the example that I've given before and, and that I may have said on this podcast before is – if I told you it was someone's job to open nearly every PDF that that entered their inbox and to double click on things and to view files and to make connections with unknown people and to be very, very, very vast on social media platforms, you might say, well, from a security perspective, that person is the biggest risk to our organization. And I would say, well, that's recruiting in HR. Um so we, we get to a point where we blur the line between, well, okay, you can never do this thing, right? Don't open PDFs because of what might be inside of them. It's like, well, you, you've just kind of, you know, eliminated a portion of someone's job. So I would go the route of kind of advising your users. Um, you know, obviously it's tough because the preview pane can be rendered automatically. So there are ways that you could go into your Microsoft Office applications and kind of limit preview options. There's security updates that have been made available as well. Um, I definitely recommend installing those as soon as you can. That's always going to be my first recommendation. Yeah, I heard Microsoft put this one out in the last patch Tuesday. So the patch yeah, is already available. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm always a huge fan of pushing out for updates and, and kind of patching things as quickly as you can because it's minimum disruption to normal business operations. What I mean by that is not the, the uh, task of actual patching. That could be disruptive. But more, I don't want to tell all 100,000, 100,000, you know, or 100, comma, 1,000, comma, or 100,000, comma, employees, hey, I need you to change the way you do business tomorrow, right? User education becomes the other helpful side of that. And then, of course, I would also lean on things like email security and whatnot. Um, I would go another route and, and I would certainly say, you know, you could certainly, if anyone's got email security in place, you could certainly, you know, start to do some maybe analysis of your normal traffic and be like, well, how often do we receive RTF files? Is this a normal thing that my users would receive and whatnot? Are there maybe some better controls I can put in before it even reaches the inbox 
buys me some time to do some patching if need be. And then I, you know, can alleviate some of those risks and concerns as opposed to telling everyone, hey, don't open files because it's actually the software that's rendering the, the running the code here. It's not a user necessarily double clicking something. Hmm. Interesting. Um, another one that caught my attention was the Emotet botnet started spamming again, implying that it has been dormant for some time. This one caught my attention because I believe this is the botnet that Marcus Hutchins took down back before WannaCry. Is it common that a botnet will go idle for a while before popping back up? And, and what do we make of it when they do become active again? Yeah, so this is this for me is personally, and I'd, I'd love, if anyone listening to this wants to reach out and continue this conversation, I'd love to have it. This for me has always been a really interesting concept. Uh, emotet, emotet. I'm not sure exactly. I've never been sure how to pronounce this. Like most named groups, I've never been. I've never been aware of exactly how to phrase these. I believe this group has actually gone underground a couple of times. I think they went underground back in 2019. I, I think there was a point where Microsoft made an effort to shut them down or sinkhole them or something like that. I think we kind of continue to see this. You know, this happen when we get to a point of saying, "Hey, this group is back up." I tend to. In my head, I tend to think of the group of people behind this who maybe went silent for a little bit, but have come back up. But to us, it's just a digital representation of malware and stuff like that. I think this is very, very common. Uh, you'll see threat actors, once they reach kind of a certain critical mass, they've either achieved the goal they want to achieve, or to quote a bunch of movies, the heat gets too close, or someone figures out how to sinkhole their, you know, f figure out their their domain generation algorithm or whatever it might be, whatever their stronghold is. Someone figures that out and then sinkholes them. The tricky thing to be remembered is you can do as much sinkholing, you can do as much kind of higher level types of containment events as you want to, but you're still going to have hundreds, thousands, or tens of thousands of infected systems. I'd go as far as to argue if anyone remembers Conficker, for example, there's systems still infected with Conficker that are out there, you know, and what you'll see happen is these groups know that they know that they infected 20,000 systems, hypothetically, and maybe, you know, realistically, a thousand or 2000 got patched. There's other systems out there in very low security networks that probably never got patched or no one knows or is even infected or anything like that. So they'll likely look for ways to reactivate their infrastructure or come back online, if you will. The other side of it, too, and another argument I make with a lot of folks is remember that for botnets and botnet operators, it's a source of revenue. It's what they know. It's what they know how to do. So if they go underground for a little bit and lay low and then they, you know, spend that time, I hate to see it, I hate to say it, but like investing in R&D, learning new techniques, learning new things, rewriting malware, you know, all the stuff that any of us would do during kind of a, a down phase, if you will. Um, if they go and do that, it gives them a chance to come back up with new techniques and hopefully evade detection a little bit longer. And maybe, you know, some time for reflection where they say, well, what got us caught the first time? How do we maybe not get caught this time? The other thing, and, and I don't have anything to back this up with other than understanding how business operations go, but I believe this group has, or this particular malware or whatever the association is, has been around since like 2014 or so. Uh, so let's just say in 2013, we're observing nine years of malware family slash malware gang history, Chris. In nine years, you tell me how much a business can change in nine years. We can rotate personnel. People get old. People pass away. People have families. People's priorities changes. All sorts of things happen, right? 
So I don't know. Sometimes you may just have the leader of a group say, hey, we had a great three-year run. I'm out. I'm going to take my couple million and go retire somewhere and, and I'm done. And they got to restructure, right? They got to find a way to reconfigure things. And I, I think sometimes you see the human side of botnet operations and, and you know ransomware operations is another one too, where you see these groups have kind of like heydays of operations and then they wind down a little bit. I think some of that is due to detection and uh, the inability to evade defenses anymore, coupled with kind of like, hey, let's let's take a breather. The next one I got is uh, from Checkpoint researchers who noticed Chinese APT activity targeting Southeast Asian government entities. It started back in 2021 when they started observing it, where they reported on a tool set they were seeing called Sharp Panda which was being used in an espionage campaign against South Asian governments such as Vietnam, Thailand, and Indonesia. Basically, anybody that had sort of uh, uh, border disputes or land disputes with uh, China. Uh, they saw a similar string of activity near the end of 2022, and this is where it gets interesting for me. Along with the Sharp Panda toolset, they were seeing other known pieces of malware such as uh, Soul Searcher and the Soul Modular Framework. They mentioned that this is a key characteristic inherent to Chinese-based APT operations, uh, where they're sharing custom tools between groups and have task specialization. You know, so I, I find this so fascinating because where ransomware groups seem to operate like startups, this seems much more like an enterprise technology company like IBM with specialized departments and stuff. So can you shed any light on the scale of Chinese APTs and how these sort of specialized units work together? Yeah, so this is this has been an interesting topic for for quite a while here. I mean, I, I usually summarize it up to folks as in, in the experiences that I've had with this, and some of the research I've done, things I've read, cases I've worked. Um, a lot of times, you're dealing with uh, military units. You're dealing with a, a a military unit. If anyone remembers, all the way back to more than I guess ten years ago, where we had the APT one report come out, um, which was a, an identified unit in the PLA. That came out from the folks at Mandiant back then and through they've gone through a few changes, but Mandiant's still around. But, you know, the APT1 report came out and kind of listed the way that they operated. And it was a, it's a military operation. Some of the things that I've discussed with clients or I've talked to various folks about over the years has been uh, you're, you're right in that the ransomware groups comparatively tend to act a little more like startups. They're a little more short lived and the global law enforcement looking for ransomware groups and stuff like that compared to APTs is going to be a little bit different, primarily because you have maybe rogue groups conducting ransomware operations versus state-sanctioned military groups conducting APT-style operations. Now, obviously, I don't know the entire layout of the entire army, the entire PLA behind it, but I wouldn't be surprised to see that kind of big business thinking, that big business layout, which is teams of specialized people you know, there's my malware authors, there's my network reverse engineers, there's my operating system reverse engineers, there's the folks who do this and that. Everyone's got those specialized skill sets. And when you've got the backing of a national, uh, you know, of, of a national government, you've, you've got unlimited resources for all intents and purposes. I mean, it's, you know, it's measured in the trillions, right? So what you have is these military style units that may have specialties, they may have functions. Um, they, you know, likely will focus on certain things or get given targets that they're told to go after. You called it out in the very beginning. It's a regional thing, at least in this particular aspect. They were going after Southeast Asian countries or South, the governments of Southeast Asian countries. We won't get into, you know, the whole geopolitical spectrum, but let's just say China has a very big investment in that region of the world. 
And it's a long, long ongoing thing that, you know, you'll find all sorts of APT operations being conducted against these types of targets. But that being said, what you called out is exactly the type of difference. You've got these military style units, specified either requirements, specialized targets, specialized operations, uh, state sanctioned or state nexus is actually a better term for that. Um, state nexus groups, which you know are operating at the direction of a higher authority, and therefore they do feel sometimes a little more organized. But the way that their different campaigns come together also tend to resemble a lot of attributes different from other types of cases. In fact, I think the naming is kind of the big indicator there. I've always broken it down as APT, Advanced Persistent Threat. If you break down each one of those adjectives, Advanced is speaking to resource availability. It's also speaking often to capabilities. Persistent. Persistent is the big one. You can have APTs and ransomware groups using the same types of tactics and techniques. Ransomware groups, I found, will often give up. They're, they're opportunistic. They're looking for something at that exactly. point in time where... They want, they want money. Yeah. Right? They want money. They're not given a multi-year objective of breaking into a government of a potential opposing country or whatever. Um, and they're not, you know, the, the goal is I want to make X million dollars in the next month or two months. And I'm going to keep hacking my way through networks until I get there. Whereas an APT may say, hey, I want to read emails for the next five years. So I want to be in there low and slow and everything like that. Um, and then obviously it's, it's really an amalgamation of kind of all those things brought together. Unlimited resources, state-sanctioned attacking, the ability to be persistent, the ability to have specialized groups all around you, um, and then also the ability to think a little bit outside of the box in the way that you do things as well. Uh, ransomware will often, again, that kind of spray-and-pray approach, like let me fish a thousand victims. Let me create a watering hole for anyone who walks through. Let me go and attack every open RDP instance, or let me go after everyone with that Microsoft Word CVE, or see, you know, see see who who catches the bait, right? Whereas an APT may come back and say, no, no, we have five targets, and we want to be in those targets for for years at a time. So our focus is very different, and our approach is probably going to align more with those targets as well. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to have to do like a deep dive on China one day because it's fascinating the way they operate. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating. I mean, for anyone, again, I, I'm always I'll say it again and again for anyone who listens to our podcast and would love to either offer some commentary on that or, or, or even wants to get on Twitter or inside of our Slack and talk about it further. I would love to hear, you know, um, the differing opinions or the similarities that folks have seen in the various operations ton of research out there, a ton of insight into how it happens, but it's always a fascinating topic. And yeah, we should definitely break it down one day. It's it's a fun one to track, but it, it can certainly get a little, um, it, get, it gets big very fast, right? <laughs> you know, because when you're a superpower, your uh, potential enemies are almost everyone. <laughs> Okay, going back to the business side of the cybercrime world, uh, one of the vendors making parts for SpaceX was recently compromised by a LockBit affiliate. Apparently, they left a message taunting Elon Musk and the engineers at SpaceX and say they're going to auction off 3,000 schematics. Um, so what is LockBit? Fill me in. Yeah, so this is, uh, this is another one of those uh, ransomware groups that I think tend to be kind of associated like they get named by the malware or the malware gets named by the the group or something along those lines but lockbit is one of those kind of dual use names it's the malware and the criminal organization behind it as well lockbit is is you know 
I'm just going to call it at its surface kind of a, a piece of ransomware, a piece of malware that, that assists in ransomware breaches and stuff like that. You know, it goes through and it does exactly what we all are familiar with ransomware doing. Locks up files to an environment, locks up files to a network. The Lockbit group is one that features pretty heavily in the kind of ransomware as a service model. This is where we'll see groups kind of sell or pass off access or sell or pass off malware implementations or, or you know, malware that's been deployed out there. So it tends to sometimes fall into that realm of like, well, is Lockbit the malware that's there? Is Lockbit the group that's doing this? Is it both? Is it half one, half the other or whatever it might be? But it's it's kind of one of those, you know, toss up in the air as to like just how detailed this, this exactly is. And what I mean by that is like, I'm not working the investigation, Chris, neither you or I are working it. So we're, we're reading news reports about it, right? But that being said, I believe it's the Lockbit group that has come out and has kind of bragged, yep. They broke into uh, Maximum Industries, which makes parts for SpaceX. I'll be honest with you. If you can you know, get into a position right now where you can get online and publicly attempt to try and bait Elon Musk into something, you, yeah, you're guaranteed to get a reaction out of somebody right. for it. You know what I mean? But that being said, uh, I believe that we've had some posts from Lockbit. They've talked about some of the schematics. I think they've put some drawings out there or they've put, you know, some screenshots of things they've got and everything like that. SpaceX, you know, does do work for the federal government. This was a supplier of theirs. So we're looking at a supply chain attack in a certain way. Um, Although I'd argue and say the attacking of a supplier and then ransoming the supplier is not necessarily a supply chain kind of step up attack, meaning they might not have used this to get into SpaceX itself. But it can still have significant impact and significant concerns, and it might you know, put a lot of things at risk. I believe they gave a deadline of March 20th on this one if the uh, pay demands aren't met. But uh, nonetheless, you know, this is one of those. There might be some other things happening in the background that we're not aware of. Uh, I'm sure there's a team on the ground trying to determine just how impactful this breach or alleged breach actually was. What did they steal? You know, what types of data is it? So on and so forth. It's not uncommon for these types of things to be very loud and proud at the beginning. And then after enough research, someone comes back and says, oh, yeah, that's all a public data set that we made available. Stuff in we don't care about anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, and, and it's like, I could, you know, good job trying to get one up on us or something <laughs> like that. And I'd say I don't have the percentage, but there's certainly plenty of ransomware cases out there, which is uh, the disclosure of what seems to be super private information in the hopes that someone will just pay to get rid of you as opposed to a lot of reputable firms will actually go through and validate, ask for proof of data, you know, ways to confirm that things are actually what they're alleged to be, evaluate the risk to the organization and stuff like that. I mean, there's a whole behind the scenes process of of what that looks like. I know we're coming up on time. We've got a hard stop today. So uh, the last one I want to get to is uh, a name that everybody should recognize, Ring, the home security and smart home company owned by Amazon, uh, has been ransomed by Alf V. Alf, again, I don't know how to pronounce these malware groups, uh, the Alf V ransomware group, and is threatening to leak all the data if they don't get paid. I couldn't find any information on the attack. I'm assuming they're going to be in the no- negotiations right now. Do you know anything about this ransomware group and any idea how these sorts of negotiations take place? Yeah, so this is a, this is a exact same vein, exact same discussion here. The uh, Alpha V uh, with Alpha, I guess, with the last letter upside down. Um, they use a piece of malware known as Black Cat, I think. Similar situation. They claim to have data from Ring. They claim to, hey, we're going to release this or disclose this if you do not 
um, let us go or anything like that. Uh, I believe Ring's response was that they don't have an evidence of breach of their own systems, but they think it might have been a third-party vendor that was hit with the ransomware. I, I would call it almost an identical lineup as what we see with SpaceX, where it's not the parent company, the one that everyone thinks it is, but it's instead maybe a supplier or something like that. Um, however, this one I do know got some very, very interesting posts. Uh, there was some Twitter discussions that kind of talked about the forum posts and the demands being made. I think the uh, Alf V or, or Aleph V or however it's pronounced group came out and said, hey, Ring, if you don't pay us, there's always an option to let us just leak your data. And I think that is the critical, important consideration there is that this is a ransomware group that will do exactly what they're doing. They are very public. They name, they shame, they try to extort, they try to force you to pay. They try to do all sorts of things to get you kind of at that edge and just say like, you know what, just pay to get this thing over with. I just, I want to be done here. It's all a goal towards getting more money and yeah. things like that. Um, we might see a data disclosure, if you will. We we might actually see this happen. Uh, I, I personally am not sure of how much data is in there, but I do believe that there were some screenshots of ring camera files or at least some videos of ring camera data and that kind of stuff. The thing is, Ring is an interesting company because it does provide kind of home security, cloud-based home security and stuff like that. But it's well known that Ring also provides data to law enforcement officials. Um, there's tons of cases out there where, you know, the case has been solved by someone's Ring data that captured a, a car, getaway car or a thief walking down the road. Or um, So my point about all this is to say you compromised Ring data might mean you just came across a trove of files that had been shared through some other means or something like that. Um, I think we'll wait to get more details from the team out there. But in short, Amazon or Ring have come back and have said basically, hey, it wasn't us. It might have been a third party. And we will see, you know, I, same with SpaceX. I'd want to see a confirmation of data, dates, timestamps. How valuable is this? What's the risk of this getting out there? Who's it actually fall on? Who's responsible for it? How much access did they actually have? Because that's another thing that's of consideration, too. If I tell you, Chris, that I stole 40 gigs of data but I only show you 10 pictures. I'm hoping you'll believe that the other 39.9999999 gigs are, are there too, right? But you never know. But nonetheless, I think it's one of those cases that we'll have to track closely and see what comes out at the end. Awesome. Well, and here we are at time. So thanks very much, Matt. Again, I know you're super busy right now. Appreciate you doing this with me every week and uh, we'll, we'll do it again next time. We have a lot of fun, Chris. I'll yeah. talk to you again soon. Okay. Take care, sir. Thanks. Bye. Before we move on to the next segment, I just want to take a moment and introduce an upcoming conference called Mission Control taking place in Arlington, Virginia on October 5th and 6th this year. To tell us a little bit about the conference and who it's for, I have Maxime lamoth Broussard, founder and CEO of Lima Charlie here with me. Mission Control is a cybersecurity conference that we're putting together with a very kind of distinctive direction. We wanted to put something together that was looking at innovation and change in cybersecurity. So we're really looking forward to getting different points of views and to see where people think that the, the direction of how we build cybersecurity should be done going forward. Why did you decide to put on a conference? We decided to put on the Mission Control Conference because we realized that there's a lot of cybersecurity conferences out there that are targeting practitioners or you know, security, you know, threat intelligence, some of the very kind of the fundamentals of cybersecurity. But nobody was really kind of putting together a whole picture of 
where as an industry at a macroscopic level how we do things so not necessarily the things that we do but how do we approach them how do we do them getting all those different perspectives so when we had that realization um, we decided to put on the conference together who is mission control for Mission control is for a lot of people. Um, I, I think fundamentally, I guess I would say anybody in cybersecurity uh, should be interested, obviously. But uh, it's really for people that probably look, uh, you know, that, that know about cybersecurity pretty well. So maybe not so much brand new to the field. People that have seen how it's done today and that have thoughts and opinions and are looking for, uh, you know, maybe getting out of firefighting, just changing the way that things are done. So if you've ever sort of had those kinds of, you know, higher level thoughts about, you know, why are things this way, we hope that you're going to get a ton from the conference. What can I expect if I attend Mission Control? If you attend Mission Control, you can expect many different things. Some hands-on workshops, training, but also a lot of talks uh, given by people that see cybersecurity very differently. So we hope that this kind of gives you new ideas, new thoughts, makes you want to try different things. And, and really fundamentally, at the end of the day, we hope that, that you can leave with the, the drive to try to do things differently and maybe talk about your experiments and your outcomes for next year. You can learn more by visiting the Mission Control website at missioncontrol.org. That's M-S-S-N-C-T-R-L dot org. Up next, my conversation with Joe Schreiber, co-founder and CEO of AppNovi. Hey, Joe, thanks for being on the show with us today. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. Um, to get things started, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what your company does? My name is Joe Schreiber. I'm co-founder and CEO of AppNovi. And to answer your question about what AppNovi does, I'll uh, start with another question, which is one that I asked myself and all of my analysts often asked in the SOC, which was, hey, what is this thing, right? You, you started a security investigation with an IP address, maybe a host name, uh, or even a cider block sometimes. And so you have to start with any good security investigation, go through a series of questions. And in order to answer those questions, there isn't a shortage of data, right? The, the, the issue is getting access to that data and creating that correlation of, of that data. And when you think about what's happening today, the analyst has the burden of doing that themselves, right? They have to acquire that information. They have to correlate that information. And then they also have to overcome the barriers, whether they be technical, bureaucratic, or what have you, in order just to start answering those series of questions in order to do their job. And so at AppNovi, what we've done is we've built a, a connective tissue between all of these security tools to help you answer those questions immediately. We connect to all of these tools, uh, no agents, uh, nothing to install, but, but AppNovi, of course. And then after you do that, you have access to your entire security stack, and we present it to you in a highly visual way and an easy way to query without programming languages, classic no-code methodology here. And we present this in a visual way so that you can get answers to those questions immediately, um, whether it's where is this asset, who owns this asset, what application is it a part of, and so on. And it's really from that pain of, of, of answering and asking those questions of my analyst all the time that really AppNovi came to be born. 
Um, yeah, on your website, you talk about mesh architecture a lot, which I know is like a new Gartner quadrant. Is that sort of the the, the core philosophy behind this product you've built? Yeah, absolutely. And we aligned to cyber mesh for two reasons. One is the the data methodology that that I just described, right? This idea of connecting this data together, um, breaking down the technical silos between that, and then helping you paint that that very vivid picture. But the second reason that we also align to cyber mesh is more on the human side, right? Because I think what you've seen is this um, take away from generalization into specialization, which then creates silos inside, you know, large enterprises where, you know, this is my data, this is how you access my data, and so forth. And that really slows down incident response, it really hinders vulnerability management, and it can even make things like asset management sometimes very painful to do. And so part of the cyber mesh mentality is is creating that communication mesh between all of those silos and organizations so that you can respond to its incidents with higher efficiency. And that's something that I'm, I'm very on board with, um, having, again, you know, experienced that pain both in enterprise and in security operations. Another thing that caught my eye on your website was uh, you mentioned closed loop remediation. Can you just quickly explain that one to me? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, closed loop is not a is not necessarily a new concept um, in general. Uh, as, as you may have also read, I'm into home automation, so closing loops is is really important for for a lot of that. Um, but really, what it means is that you have the ability to initiate an action, but also validate that, that that action has successfully completed, therefore closing that loop. So a lot of times today, automation is kind of fire and forget, right, or fire and pray, and and hope that whatever agent you asked to install or the the quarantine you asked to initiate actually occurred. Whereas with AppNovi, you can actually initiate that action validate that action by querying that data source again and closing that loop and ultimately saving you time uh, by removing more of the the human aspect inside remediation and other tasks. Like an act back on the network kind of thing. Yeah, typically like a three-way handshake kind of thing happening uh, in, in automation. Absolutely. So as a cybersecurity founder, you've been through a lot and you've probably learned a lot of things on, along the way. Uh, do you have any advice for anyone out there that's thinking about making the leap to trying to start a cybersecurity product company? What are the things that you wish you knew before you started? Oh, wow. Um, well, that's going to be the the start of my new book, right? Um, <laughs> things, things I wish I had known. Uh, well, you know, my humorous answer is usually don't do it. Uh, if you're thinking <laughs> about doing a startup, don't do it. Really, I think it comes down to the problem and the solution, right? Do you have a recognizable problem with an addressable market? Right? I think that's key. And then the size of that market determines where that solution may be in terms of scale, and then directing you towards the solution that you need uh, to solve it. And I think the, the, the focus on that solution is really the most important part. The purity of that solution is really what's absolute at a startup, because you're trying to make something unique, something new. And ultimately something that does solve that problem, right? You can absolutely go out and copy others, make similar solutions and so forth. But if you have a novel solution or aka build, you built a better mousetrap, it definitely makes the success of your company slightly easier, right? And I'll stress that slightly part um, because then you, you have something that no one has, right? Or maybe a VC would call that a, a technology moat, right? Cybersecurity is a very crowded market. 
and everybody's competing for eyeballs and, and to get people's attention just to look at their product, whether or not the product's a good solution or not. Uh, is there any tactics you're taking that you would be willing to share that you use to help AppNovi stand out in such a crowded market? No, I mean, that's a great question. And I think, you know, the first thing I need to recognize and, and say very dutifully out there is marketing is hard. Okay. Uh, I know as a practitioner, technologist, you know, my first instinct is to look at marketing and say, no, right? Like, that is not right. That is not accurate. That is not what we do, right? Uh, or is that not, that's not what the product does and so forth, right? You know, you scroll through all these websites and, you know, the, the, the credulity really strikes you. So I, I, I want to recognize that, right? So when I, when I say things about marketing, I definitely feel for the folks that have to do it, both on the, the, the product marketing side um, and the general marketing side, right? Getting eyeballs is tough. Getting, like you said, getting awareness in a very crowded, crowded space. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine, you know, if I created the next endpoint product, right? What would I have to do in order to stand out? You know, I, I don't know if I can put an Olympian on a bus like everyone, right? I just don't know, you know, what it would take in order to get that, that message out there. Um, you know, for me, I, I, I tend to, as the non-marketing guy, right, I, I tend to rely mostly on the product, right? So, you know, product-led growth mentality and also creating loyalty with the users of your product. Um, and so for me, you know, the first important aspect to separate myself from the field is that the product actually exists, right? It's real. It's installable. It's doing what we say it will do. And I, and I think, you know, unfortunately, where we are today with some marketing, the bar might actually be that low, right? Mm -hmm. um, can, I, can I install this product and will it do what I paid for you to do? But then after that, I, I think really what's important to me is the user experience. I, as, as again, I'll probably say this throughout the podcast, right? As a practitioner, you know, I, I have, you know, these, this, this 25 years or more, 30 years actually, of, of being a practitioner, and I've had to be on the other side of things like shelfware, false marketing claims, uh, support tickets, right? All of that pain um, is, is really felt, you know, when I went to, to build uh, AppNovi. And, you know, I would ask myself constantly, right, is this what I would want? Is this how I would expect the product to operate? Is this as easy as it can be? Are there too many steps, right? Can I remove things that aren't necessary in the product and so forth? And all of that culminates in a user experience inside AppNovi that's very simple to use, simple to understand, um, and of course, simple to install and, and maintain. When we install the product, um, the response in majority is, that's it, right? I, I think people are ex you know expecting like these long ordeals of installs, right? You know, the calls yeah. to support tickets or the calls to support during the install and so forth, right? You know, it takes days sometimes to install software. Is it AppNovi? It's, it's depending on the speed of your disk, right? It might be five to 10 minutes, um, <laughs> depending on how fast, you know, the, the extraction takes. And so I spend, you know, on that side, um, a lot of focus on building that, that unique user experience that you won't find in any other product and I think from there, the marketing, you know, emanates from that. Very cool. So true product-led growth. It's just to get it in front of them, get them to use it, and the the experience of the application will will sell itself. 
Absolutely. That's the goal, right? Uh, I'm sure, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll find new ways to spend marketing dollars outside of that, uh, of course, right? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, as the product owner from the agile sense, right, that is kind of my philosophy, just make the product so compelling to use that, you know, everyone will be willing to write you a check at the end of the day. Um, you mentioned in your last answer that you've been a practitioner for about 30 years. A lot's happened in cybersecurity during that time. Uh, what are the biggest changes that you've seen over that time and, and what's stayed the same? Wow. Uh, well, let's start with uh, what's what's stayed the same. Right. Uh, and that is change. Uh, I think that's, you know, a factor of life, of course. Right. But I think, you know, in in the cybersecurity space, everything has changed constantly. You know, the attack vectors, the defensive mechanisms, the way you architect the network, the way you deploy services, right? All of that has uh, expanded and changed dramatically. And I think that then goes into, you know, what has been, you know, the, the, bigger, the biggest challenges. And I think really what I, what I would say from a holistic point of view is this expansion of contraction from specialist to generalist, right? So when I, when I was starting out, um, I could literally administer and run everything in an IT security stack, right? You know, maybe an IDS and a firewall. Maybe there was an endpoint or back then it was, you know, an AV agent, right? Um, mm-hmm. They weren't as sophisticated as, as they are today. Um, but all of that was in, you know, in my domain or, um, you know, in, in my coworker's domain or, or what have you. And it was very kind of simple to manage all of that. The communication path going back to the cyber mesh was was very simple, right? I could just, you know, lean over to the to the man or woman next to me and, and ask them and, and share this knowledge and so forth. But then as all of these things changed, we reached this this almost um, strong demand to specialize, right? So if you look maybe in a typical SOC now, it's not just like tier one, tier two, tier three. Right, you have maybe a malware specialist, a network specialist, um, and and all of these things. You know, someone's going to go off and detonate some of this stuff. Some of somebody's going to replay it. Right, someone's going to um, you know perhaps set up a test bed or, or or all of these other things that may occur in order to complete it. And then you have then skill shortage, reduction in everything. Really, more trying to compel people to get back to being a generalist, so companies can hire less folks to do security, right? So I think that challenge of where do I, where do I go, right? What do I do? Do I, do I stay on this one course and, you know, fight malware for the rest of my life? Is that, is that where I'm going? Or do I open up my knowledge domains and try to be, you know, wearing many hats and so forth in an organization uh, in order to stay relevant? And, and, and again, with that constance of change, right? You just, it's really difficult for someone to understand what their path may be in cybersecurity. So I, I think that's one of the most difficult things, again, holistically. One of the areas of expertise that you proclaim is intrusion detection. What are some key points you can share here for any detection engineers that are listening? You know, I, I, I do wonder if that, sh- you know, kind of shows age a little bit, right? Because I, I don't know if, if folks are using IDS still. I mean, I hope they do. It's still a very potent weapon in, uh, in cybersecurity. But, you know, obviously the rise of encryption has really um, kind of diluted its value. I was always a big fan of packet captures, particularly back then when things uh, weren't encrypted. Because as we used to say, um, packet caps don't lie. Right. You know, all, all kinds of things are based on interpretation, but 
packet capture is what really happened, right? It's the surveillance video, right, of maybe what happened during an incident. And, and you, can't, you can't misinterpret that. And I think that was a key tenet to doing packet cap. And even before there was packet caps, I was using like TCP dump and grep, right, in order to do these things, pull these interesting things off of the wire. I still think, you know, network, this network surveillance aspect is still really important, but it's more shifted away from packet caps and more to heuristics, right? Mm -hmm. Looking for uh, anomalies in data, changes in path, changes in data usage, consumption, and so forth that are coming off the wire and less reliance on, you know, pure signature intelligence at this point. Do you have any thoughts on Zeek or Sericata tools like that? Are those useful with intrusion detection? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, I I have to admit, I'm a huge Sericata fanboy. I have the shirt, I have the hat, I have the (laughs) stickers um, as well. I even have the two snort pigs uh, as well, right? As you mentioned, I am into IDS, right? And so I think, you know, having these controls is part of that fundamental stack, right? I'll use again the term network surveillance. And then with Zeek, you're getting that kind of endpoint awareness surveillance too, which I think is really great because it's doing this passive type detection of what's going on, trying to interpret, you know, what is the operating system of a thing, maybe through TCP sequencing and things like that, that you aren't necessarily getting from a pure IDS like, like Sericata. But I would also point out, right, that Sericata has, and I don't know if we're turning this into an infomercial for Sericata at this point, <laughs> right, but Sericata has a lot of other interesting uh, aspects to it that help it work alongside Zeek, you know, whether it be NetFlow collection, DNS query collection, right, all of these things then you can then feed into threat intel or CTI, right, for um, matching against other types of events and so forth, right? Again, coming back to that need to correlate data. Just with AppNovi, as we said, right, the, the single source is not enough. I can't rely just on IDS. I can't rely just on endpoint. I can't rely on my firewall anymore. You have to understand all of this data and then correlate it in order to make a good, a good picture so then you can then make a great decision. And so having all of those tools at your disposal is, is always valuable. Very cool. Yeah, I've spoken with the Suricata folks. They're very kind, so glad to hear their products well-received. You're a big advocate for automation. Uh, you hosted a talk about automating yourself out of a job. What are some steps practitioners can take to do security automation right? And what are some of the obvious things that people should be automating that they might not be already? Wow. You're, I mean, you're, you're bringing back some interesting memories when you ask that, because that is quite literal. I did automate myself actually out of several jobs. Um, <laughs> and I think that comes for, or it really comes from a really strong intolerance of repetition, which I think is the cornerstone of automation, right? Why are you automating something in the first place? Or if I put on the project manager hat, right, what is your use case um, in, in this instance, right? So uh, I, I am a huge zealot of automation in all forms, whether it be home automation, security automation, um, et cetera. I do put it all to the test. Um, and so for me, again, you know, if you're thinking about tips and tricks, the first thing is asking yourself, what am I doing every day? Right. Am I doing the same thing every day? You know, you know, you can think about that in terms of home automation, right? Do I, do I wake up in the morning? Uh, every day? I hope so. Um, I hope we all do, right? Uh, do I wake up in the morning? Then what do I do, right? I turn on a light. Maybe I turn on the TV to a specific channel. Um, maybe then I get up and I turn on the coffee maker and I wait for it to warm up. Well, if you think about the home automation, well, I can just uh, put a sensor. It knows when I wake up. 
uh, looks at the time of day, triggers that light, turns on the TV, turns on the coffee maker, and so forth, right? That can be extrapolated into all, all forms of automation, right? So if I get a particular alert, what am I doing? Uh, I'm looking up this IP in my IPAM, right? I'm looking up this thing in the threat intel database and so forth. And this was the genesis of uh, Source, right, for that matter, which, uh, you know, I, I built one of those um, inadvertently doing this, this home automation, right, which is I'm taking all of these repetitive actions, I'm writing scripts and automations against them, and then compiling the results, saving myself the time of running them. But I think automation is, is a very powerful tool. And just as it can do good, it can do bad. So, you know, if you remember, what is it, like six years ago, automation took down Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. Because someone had, uh, you know, written a script that went wild, right? And I think where a lot of people get bitten with automation is not realizing how it can go wrong. I can't tell you how many either SOAR platforms or automation scripts were run and they opened up a thousand tickets, right, in a system. And now all of a sudden, no one wants to use automation, right, because they feel the pain of going in and remediating what that automation did. So when I created automation, I always put checks and bounds on it, right? So, you know, there should be hold downs or thresholds. Is it really viable that a, that a automation script creates a thousand tickets in a second or two seconds, right? I, I don't think that should ever be the case. So you can protect yourself that uh, or protect yourself from that in the automation itself, right? And if you're doing a playbook, you know, you can look and do a hold down or a threshold check or something like that to ensure those things don't happen. Because, you know, the value of automation is its continuous use. And so if you put yourself in a position where that automation is no longer wanted by individuals or or puts the task that you're doing at risk, right? You're taking that that step backwards. So uh, I, I would advise, right, protect yourself against yourself and when you do when you do these automations to really protect the sanctity of doing that automation in the first place. Very good advice. And I think we might have touched on this one a little with your earlier answer about navigating your career in cybersecurity, but uh, from a more tactical point of view, what do you feel are the biggest challenges facing cybersecurity professionals today? I'll take that on a couple of fronts, right? Because it's a really broad question, right? So I, I think I, I think the first aspect is kind of what we talked about before, right? This generalization versus specialization and keeping fresh in a particular knowledge domain. That's a really difficult thing to do, especially, you know, if you're classically blue team or you're defender, right? Because you know, the classic phrase, right? The attacker only has to be right once, right? So, <laughs> yes. you know, you, you know, your, your mentality, your, your well-being could potentially be affected by that, right? You're spending hundreds and hundreds of hours creating a defense that someone might just inadvertently or in minutes um, take over, right? So that's a very difficult thing. But I think what's really, other than the technical challenges of cybersecurity, I think the more pernicious thing right now is really the mental aspect is this idea of burnout, right? Stress, trauma, and so forth. Because I think what we've seen is, or what is still today, um, you know, this classic attitude of do more with less, which is another way of saying, we don't want to hire more people to help you, which is really the struggle that I think a lot of folks are doing. And the organizations are really relying on the good nature of these human beings to want to do a good job. So in order to do a good job, I need to put in more hours, 
In order to do a good job, I need to learn these things on my off hours. In order to do a good job, I need to be on call and be responsible. And, and I can't help but remember, you know, certain times when I would be in the sock all by myself, like literally by myself, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, I'm responsible for the security of hundreds of organizations mm-hmm. at this point. You know, if I go to the bathroom, I, I might miss something. So, you know, maybe I should keep this bottle next to my desk, right? Oh, no. That kind of mentality, you know, it, it really, really causes a mental strain, right? So, you know, and we use all of this nomenclature around warfare too in, in cybersecurity, right? Attacker, victim, source, target, campaign, threat actor, right? But we don't really talk about the other side of that, right? What's the consequence of being in that mode all of the time? What is it like being inside this type of cyber warfare all of the time? And, and that burden on your psyche is, is really tough. I mean, if you're in operations, the, the tickets, right, the SIM events, they never stop. They never will stop, right? If you think you're going to get a SOAR platform or some other, you know, new thing, right, that'll gradually you know, and amazingly reduce your workload, it's not going to happen, right? It's the reality of it. Or if you're an enterprise, you know, you don't expect your business to shrink. You know, M&A activity, other things will cause more work on your behalf, integration of new tools, new business units, new people, new methodologies, right? None of that is going to change. um, And none of that is likely going to get much better. And so I think we really need to focus on helping these people find peace, find sanity, particularly, of course, in their off hours. Some are really great about it, right? You know, they have great hobbies, um, they find outlets, and they're able to blow off, you know, that steam. Some are not. And I think it's really important to help folks find that kind of mindfulness of what they're doing and, and find a way to maybe leave that, you know, at the office or leave that in the sim, right, when they when they clock out for the day. So I... I, you know, I talk to a lot of folks about this, like, how are you doing? I think that's a great question or a great conversation starter rather than what's the latest malware you saw or how how busy was your sim yesterday? You know, I, I would much rather find out how are you doing? Are you doing okay? Do you need some help? I, I think this is a much better dialogue to be having inside our industry rather than building up this competitive nature around research or incidents or, or you know, even ego to some point uh, as well. So um, I guess that's a long answer, but uh, it, it is something that's really important to me. Uh, it took me a while to find these methods, make peace with what I was doing and so forth. And I'm, I'm really hopeful that others also find that. That's a great observation, and I couldn't agree with you more, you know, having worked in many early stage startups and gone through that burnout, how cautious I am about protecting that in my life now, because for long term success, you need to have be mentally and physically healthy and burning yourself out at work is going to hurt the long term success of the organizations. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think, you know, the one thing about burnout is it can be really difficult to recognize. When exactly have you burnt out? Do you know the answer to that? Do you even know what the threshold is? And then more importantly, will people recognize it um, when it does occur? And then then after that is the recovery period from burnout too. You know, it's like, oh, just take a week off, right? Or you had a long day or you were in the war room for two days straight. 
Um, it's okay. You know, it, it's not that linear, right? It's not like, mm-hmm. oh, I'll just take, you know, two hours for every hour I spend in the sock or something like that. If you actually hit burnout, I mean, you're, you're, you've dug a hole. You've, you've mm-hmm. really dug a hole for yourself and you have to find a way and the time to dig yourself out of that. And again, it's not a linear thing. So, you know, you just don't run it through an equation and, and uh, ask for the requisite time off and then, and then kind of go about your life, right? You have to really build that support system around you and then have others help you, you know, recognize when you're burnt out and when you've recovered. This is great advice. And for anybody listening, please take this seriously. You can't build a sustainable career if you're always in a firefight. It's going to affect your mental health, your physical health, and you'll end up taking the stress home with you. I promise you. All right. So this is the last one I have for you. It's the one I ask of everybody that's on the show, and it can be as wide or narrow as you want. It doesn't even have to be cybersecurity focused. Uh, Do you have any predictions for the future? Oh, wow. So, uh, so this is like a time capsule now, right? So viewers will uh, hit, hit play on this a year from now, five years from now, and say, is this guy right? Uh, was he the prognosticator that you hoped him to be? You know, so for me, I'll, I'll, keep, it, I'll keep it broad, right? I, I don't want to like predict the size of the next DDoS attack or um, you know, the latest zero day, right? <laughs> I'll, I'll let the younger kids do that, right? Um, I, I think for me, you know, when I look at the future of technology, I keep going back to this idea of transparency, right? Technology that is so effective and useful um, and contextually aware of what you're doing that it becomes transparent. Today, the internet is like so ubiquitous. No one is now talking about packet switching or MPLS or any of that stuff. Of course, you know, you're on the backbone team or what have you, right? The internet just kind of just works or we look at some of these other technologies like assistance, right? Like Google Assistant, Siri, and so forth, where you can start to have conversations with them, right? So this idea of the interaction with them becomes more like a traditional conversation, right? The machinations of how they work then become transparent. It's like you're just asking someone uh, a question. And as we start to um, see more technologies like augmented reality, where you're overlaying information um, in real life, in real time, uh, it starts to really create that transparency with the user. So I just look forward to things getting smaller, things uh, disappearing, things unifying and, and all of that great stuff so that we can just get on with our lives, right? And not have to worry about whether something is working or not, or if I should reboot it or the battery's charged or or what have you. I can have a query, I can get an answer or I can have something predict that I might need an answer for something or maybe help me schedule a meeting, right? All of those things just become transparent. And so when I think about where the future is going, transparency is is what I keep an eye on. Interesting take. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast, Joe. I really enjoyed the conversation. And that concludes another episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. We've been having a lot of fun putting this show together and would love to hear from you. Any criticisms, suggestions, or high fives can be sent to defenders at limacharlie.io. I would also like to thank you for listening in. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.